Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me today. I recently had the chance to talk with Marsha Yonemoto about her new book, The Problem of Women in Early Modern Japan. This came out with the University of California Press in 2016, and it's a book that locates us in studies of early modern Japan with a particular focus on the family, the changing nature of the family, and on women in relation to that. So the book argues that the structure of Japanese families in this period, in the words of the book, allowed women to assume especially important roles in the maintenance and continuity of the family that went far beyond birthing and raising children. Women were in-laws, adoptees, laborers, household managers, and de facto heirs. And you'll hear us talking about this in the hour to come. The book is going to argue that because of these multiple roles, because of the overlapping of these roles, women were allowed to and empowered to deploy many forms of agency and power in the family setting. The book takes its shape from the life course of women, right? And it it argues that being attentive to the temporality of the life course um, in the case of women is really important for understanding gender relations and women's experiences in this period. And it takes us from an early chapter on filial piety through self-cultivation, marriage, motherhood, succession, and retirement. It's a really fascinating book, and this is going to be required reading for anyone interested in women and gender in the early modern period, certainly in the context of East Asia. So with that, I'll leave you to it. I hope you enjoy, and thank you so much for listening and for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Marsha Yonemoto about her new book, The Problem of Women in Early Modern Japan. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Marsha, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the traditional question, the first question for the podcast. How did you come to work on the history of Japan, Marsha, and why early modern Japan specifically? Uh Uh-huh. Um... Well, I came to the study of Japan actually quite late, um, relatively speaking. Uh, when I went to college at the University, University of California in Berkeley, um, I was not at all interested in Japan. Uh, my family uh, uh, is is originally from Japan. My grandparents immigrated um, from Japan to California in the early 20th century. But for me, Japan was kind of the old country, you know, boring, not really interested. Um, I was more interested in Europe and European history. And um, I was studying French. I studied abroad in France my junior year of college. And uh, But before that, I had taken – before I went to France, I had taken – uh, a sort of introductory freshman seminar kind of class with um, uh, Mary Elizabeth Berry, uh, Beth Berry, who uh, went on to be my dissertation advisor. Um, but uh, as a as a 19 year old sophomore in college, I blundered into this course, uh, a freshman seminar course that was um, on sort of. Um, uh, it was, I guess it was an introduction to Japanese history, but she did it in a very interesting way. And some of the documents that she used were, um, I guess, especially at that time, kind of non-traditional. And among those documents were maps, um, uh, old maps of Japan that were in the collection of the East Asian Library at Berkeley, um, which uh, has, uh, as it turns out, an amazingly fantastic collection uh, bought from the Mitsui Corporation in the 1950s of rare Japanese maps. So we went as, you know, sophomores in college and down to the library and looked at these documents, and I found them utterly fascinating. Um, I ended up writing about them. I I didn't speak or read Japanese at the time, but I did did the best I could with them and started studying a little bit about the history of cartography. But then I went off to France (laughs) and, and kind of tried to pursue the interest in Japan on my own while I was there. But when I came back, I realized I really was interested in Japan, and I 
finish the rest of my coursework in history in Japanese history um, and always had in the back of my mind these maps were really pretty interesting. Um, so I graduated from college. I moved to Japan to study Japanese language intensively at the International Christian University in Tokyo. Um, and while I was there, I applied to graduate programs thinking, you know, in the ideal world, I would you know, go back to graduate school in history and study Japan. Um, and, uh, and, and I got in. So I, I came back and I ended up writing a dissertation on those maps, <laughs> um, which became my first book, uh, which was called Mapping Early Modern Japan, Space, Place and Culture in the Tokugawa Period. Um, so that was a kind of roundabout way I got interested in Japan. It was in part the documents. It was in, in, in great part my teachers, Beth Berry and Thomas C. Smith and Erwin Shiner, um, who were all very good to me when I was a young person and probably, you know, they they. they didn't have much of a reason to listen to me, but they did. <laughs> and um, so, so that's how I got into the field. Um, Great. And then from there moved um, to the second project. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. What brought you to a focus on women in Tokugawa, Japan or in early modern Japan as the title indicates uh, specifically for the second project? Right. Um, so the first, the first book was also on the early modern period. Um, so I guess I, I didn't really answer that part of the first question, which is why the early modern period. Um, and I have always found the Tokugawa period, the early modern period, um, to be fascinating. And um, as compared to the modern period, so modern meaning, you know, late 19th, 20th century, um, to be sort of understudied. Uh, not necessarily by Japanese historians, but I think in the English language literature to be less less studied. Um, uh, there was a lot of attention to the Tokugawa period in the immediate post-war during the sort of modernization scholarship or modernization theory phase um, when people were trying to study economic growth and so forth. Um, but, um, but, but it's always been a smallish field and I just felt like it's such a fascinating period. Um, so much going on and, and, um, and so much opportunity to study, um, uh, you know, to, to look at, at topics and, and individuals who had been relatively, you know, little studied, at least in, in English. Um, so I was attracted to that period. And while I was doing research for my first book, um, I happened upon um, a memoir that was written uh, by a woman. It was Tarano Makuzu's Mukashibanashi, which was written in the 1780s. Um, and it was a memoir of, of her growing up, uh, her, her early uh, youth and young adulthood growing up, um, the daughter of a scholar in Edo uh, in the late 18th century. And I thought, how interesting, you know, don't see this very often, a memoir written by a woman. And it, but, uh, but my you know, dissertation research was on something completely other. So I backburnered that for um, a long time and just kind of kept an eye on it and kept and started reading a little bit more in women's history and gender history. And um, I thought I would do a more biographical study um, of women writers, women authors in the early modern period. Um, but subsequently, I learned that uh, other scholars were working on Tarano Makazu for one thing. Um, Bettina Gramlichoka has written a wonderful biography of her came out a few years ago. Um, and also that I was interested in a larger problem, which was not just individual women, but how women were conceived of, uh, educated, um, and, and what roles did they play more broadly in early modern society. So that kind of led me to explore the issue of, um, women's history and gender relations more broadly in the early modern period. So um, what I'll do is say just a little bit to uh, kind of lay a foundation for listeners, and then we'll dive right into some of the key uh, problems and issues that are explored in the book, and then we'll move chapter by chapter. Okay. So the introduction of the book raises the major question that readers are going to find right in the title, right? Were women a problem in early modern Japan? If they were, what was the nature of the problem that they posed? For whom and why? It also guides us into a primary argument of the book right in the introduction. Um, and here's uh, the words of the book, right, articulating this. When we read or reread the works of Tokugawa period writers and critics, we see a picture of women's lives in which women were far from passive. Women's actions were significant and powerful. And you show this throughout the chapters um, of the book. Uh, now, this is actually, I think, a good point 
to jump in and hear what I'm going to do is ask you something that actually comes up in the conclusion, right? But that really nicely frames, I think, the issue of action. So the book is going to show and the chapters show that women's actions, again, um, were really important in this period. And in the conclusion, you understand um, this in terms of what you call praxis. So you're explicitly moving away from talking in terms of agency and instead you talk about um, your preference to talk about action and its significance in terms of praxis. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that as a way of um, kind of diving into the book itself? Yeah. Um, So, you know, early modern accounts of women, both the prescriptive uh, literature that that I talk about um, that sets up ideals for women's behavior, as well as the memoirs and the diaries. There, neither of those sources are are completely transparent. I mean, they they are written with with certain agendas in mind, either you know individual agendas of the writer, in the case of the memoirs, diaries, letters, or or uh, you know intentions, uh, or in the case of prescriptive literature, the the uh, intent to educate. Right, they're didactic uh, texts. So. Um, I think to it, it's it's difficult to glean um, any uh, well I, I think you can glean a clear sense but it's it's, it's um, difficult to to sort of nail down with any precision the kinds of uh, of agency uh, that we're dealing with in other words what kinds of uh, of agency or authority women had um, and so what I preferred to do was to look in, in a kind of simple-minded way, I guess, uh, initially was to look at, at what they did and what was the cumulative effect both um, in life and discursively and in terms of, uh, of, of a larger kind of discursive field, um, what was the effect of those actions? And it seemed to me that that approach seemed to me to make more sense in the sense that it was, it was a less sort of loaded and freighted way of uh, of looking at at behavior, uh, and I think you know uh, we tend to think of of um, behavior as having to have some kind of intent behind it, right? So that any behavior indicates a certain kind of agency. But I, I, I do kind of wonder about that because I think of a lot. I think a lot of our behavior, um, the, the meanings of behavior is constructed in hindsight, right? We might do something for one reason, it turns out to have a different kind of effect and, and that it's, it's difficult to predict and much less in hindsight to analyze, you know, a clear chain of action and reaction, um, across time. So, um, so I tried to, to work more with this uh, idea of action and the more I read, the more I realized that, that, um, even in the prescriptive literature, which has been read as being somewhat oppressive or confining of women, that, you know, women were, were were expected to be, were exhorted to be active, to do things, um, to become educated, to run a household, to um, engage in productive work. And so um, there was a way in which those the, the kind of the, those two aspects kind of dovetailed in um, um, coming together in, in, in this theory of you know, focusing on praxis. Great. So as, you, as you've already um, mentioned, the book is focused on, or it focuses its analysis on two kinds of sources. And I'll just kind of briefly go over this for listeners. Um, one is, as you've been talking about, this kind of prescription literature, instruction manuals for women, representations of women in fiction and drama and woodblock prints and book illustrations. And this represents um, what you call the public discourse on women in Tokugawa period. And then the book also, in each one of the chapters really, also um, looks at the corpus of extant prose writing by women and their families in this period. And so it looks at a number of diaries, memoirs, letters from the late 17th through the mid-19th centuries. Now, through an analysis of these kinds of sources, the book is going to show that women's most meaningful actions, and this is in the words of the book, their most meaningful actions and thoughts centered on and in the household or family. And the nature specifically of the STEM family as a structure is really crucial here. Um, So Marcia, for listeners who don't really know um, what the STEM family is in this context, what is it um, and why is it so important um, for animating the analysis here? Uh huh. Yeah. So the STEM family. I mean, this has been sort of, uh, I guess, much written about, debated, and the language uh, 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 
I suppose is um, there's uh, I don't know if there's not universal agreement on it. I think this, the term the STEM family has come into wide usage in the social sciences in, in particular. And what it refers to um, is a type of family structure that is um, neither, it's, it's, sort of hard, it, it's in some ways easier to describe what it is not. It's not the large compound or clan family um, uh, 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 structure that um, you tend to see in the grand lineages of China, for example, late imperial China, nor is it the nuclear family, um, which is the you know parents and children um, uh, that, that you see today. Um, so the STEM family is characterized by several things. Um, it is characterized by co-residents of usually two, sometimes three generations, but never more than one couple from any one given generation. So the typical model would be a married couple and their children living in one house. That's also, that would be the, uh, how you would describe a nuclear family. But um, in the STEM family case, you would often also have the parents of the um the heir, the 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 family head, uh, might also be in residence um, in that household. So, uh, uh, and, and the family headship is handed down um, in Japan's case um, on the 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 patriline, the male side. Um, so it's it's a type of family um, that is predicated on the perpetuation of a lineage across time, but it's not a huge lineage. It's not a huge extended family. It's actually quite a small streamlined family. Um, and the reason it's small is because all the non-inheriting siblings of the family head move, move out of the household or stay in it only as unmarried dependence. So you would never have, for example, uh, a, a household head and his brother and his brother's wife. They would not be co-residing. Um, the brother would move out. Um, any sisters would marry and move out. And so the only people um, uh, in, in the household would be uh, would be the heir, his wife, his children, and perhaps his parents, um, who probably passed the headship on to the male heir, and he would pass it on to his own child. Um, so, so it's a, it's a, a, a compact and in theory, infinitely replicable um, family structure. And it becomes the dominant family structure in Japan, um, certainly among elites, but also among commoners um, by about the mid depends on where you're looking at for commoners, what, where, uh, what region, what um, class, um, but it, it becomes uh, the widespread family structural form by the, at least the middle of the Tokugawa period. Right. Now, the book is going to show and argue that this structure of Japanese families allowed women a kind of or facilitated for women a multiplicity of overlapping roles, right? They were in-laws, adoptees, laborers, household managers, um, de facto heirs, among other things. And this allowed them to deploy many forms of power in the family setting. Now, the book is going to take us through um, those, uh, at least some of those forms of power by foregrounding the importance um, and the issue of life course. Um, mm -hmm. And it argues early on that uh, in the words of the book, being attentive to the temporal dimension of the life course is especially important. And this is incident, the life course of a woman mm -hmm. for understanding gender relations and women's experience in this period. And the chapters are going to move us through the stages of a woman, a woman's life course roughly. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it starts with a chapter on filial piety. Now, as chapter one shows um, filial piety was not, and is not a single easily definable thing. And the first chapter looks at some really important questions posed by filial piety in the early modern era, including uh, what happens when devotion to parents compels a daughter to act in ways that defy conventions or violate the laws of a state. What did the nature of exemplary filial piety um, or why rather did the nature of exemplary filial piety change dramatically over time? Was filial piety for women a principle or was it a problem? And it does this with the help or the chapter does this rather with the help of two sets of sources. And these are these two kinds of sources we described at the very <laughs> beginning. Now, after taking us through biographies of exemplary women, which were published between the mid-17th and early 19th centuries, and there are some really 
fascinating stories and cases in there. Um, so, I mean, the, there's one with a father who winds up um, mistaking his two daughters for cranes and kills them. And in this early 18th century text, um, there's just, uh, I, I just want to mention and mark here for listeners in the hour conversation that we have, um, what we're not going to be doing is going into all of the texture of so many of the really amazing stories that are in this text. And I say this because listeners get your hands on a copy of the book because there is so much fascinating stuff in all these sources and we're definitely not going to be able to get to all of it. Okay. So there's a lot going on here, but there's also some really interesting stuff going on in the diaries and memoirs of, of women um, that you look at in the context of filial piety here. Mm -hmm. So let's actually maybe um, dive into this issue there. How did actual women, um, that you uh, read about in terms of their diaries or memoirs, understand their obligations to relationships with family members and what for you was perhaps most interesting about what was going on there? Yeah, um, I think what was most interesting was how flexible these norms like filial piety could actually be. Um, and I think I explored this in the chapter a little bit, but what, you know, you think a oh, filial piety is a duty to, you know, elders, duties to parent, duty to parents, obligation and duty to, to parents or superiors. I mean, it's pretty, you know, cut and dried. Like the, how could it possibly be flexible? But when you see the way, uh, the ways in which um, people, women in this case, actually implemented these ideals. Um, it's surprising the <laughs> types of behaviors, the varied types of behaviors, uh, murder, for example, that could be accommodated by the um, by the notion of filial piety. Um, and and I think in the in the cases of uh, of real lives, I mean, I, when I say murder, I'm saying that these filial piety tales actually uh, celebrate uh, women who murdered the, uh, murdered their fathers in many cases um people who had done violence or, or uh, uh, attacked assailed the reputation of their fathers and they avenged them by uh, killing those people and, and these are exaggerated certainly but in real life examples you see um sort of less dramatic but no less telling um enactments of filial piety and one that that, that struck me was the case of Inuatsujo, um who was a a, a a woman writer sort of celebrated as a literary prodigy um, the late 17th century. She grew up in uh, Marugame, which is in Shiko northern Shikoku, um, child of a sort of domainal official, um, celebrated as a literary prodigy in her teens um, and is is become so known for her literary prowess that she's then – sort of contracted to serve the uh, the daimyo's mother uh, as a tutor. And so she moves to Edo, which is far away at, the, at, at a young age, um, you know, sanctioned by her family to go to Edo. And she lives there for 12 years, uh, serving as a sort of tutor and lady-in-waiting to this older woman. Um, so there's just a number of exceptional things there, you know, that, that are going on that and, and, and she's not only allowed to do this, she's encouraged to do this. And it's fashioned in some ways as a form of filial duty that even though she's leaving home, she's leaving her own parents, she's moving far away. She's not marrying, uh, not she does eventually marry, but she doesn't marry at the typical time. She marries in her 30s, which is quite late. Um, she, you know, is employed, independent, um, educated, serving as a teacher, but to an older person. Uh, of much higher status. Um, so it would seem like she's contravening all kinds of, you know, uh, norms of filial piety. But in, in, in fact, she becomes a sort of model of womanly virtue. Um, when she returns, she, she um, returns home in her early 30s uh, after she's done uh, serving the uh, after the, the, the Lord's um, Daimyo's mother dies. She returns back to Marugame, marries a local official, has five kids, um, only two of whom survive her, but um, uh, and 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 raises them to be, you know, scholars and uh, and and significant people in their own right. Um, but she's she's praised, you know, for um, raising the profile, the reputation of her family, for being a learned woman, um, and yet she did so many things that, you know, on the face of it would not be filial at all. And so I find those, those kinds of examples to be really um, 
telling uh, and revealing of the ways that uh, um, these these notions of of duty, filial piety, obligation are are uh, you know not as not as cut and dried as they may seem. Um, another interesting thing about her, she has a son. Well, she has two sons. The oldest one inherits the family headship. The younger one is adopted out to a to a uh, cousin of his father, and because that that cousin has no heirs of his own, male heirs of his own, um, and so he's adopted out of the family at a young age, like eight, eight years old. Uh, but he maintains very close ties to his own mother, and even though he's legally nominally someone else's son and carries on someone else's family name, doesn't even have the same name as his mother, he remains devoted to her. And she educates him, she raises him, and he ends up being the one that kind of perpetuates, as a filial act, her literary reputation, publishes her writings. Um, so there's just lots of different funny twists to that story, you know, that the son that's adopted out of the family becomes the one who celebrates his mother's, you know, literary mm-hmm. achievements. Um, uh, but But there are so many stories like this where, um, especially in, in, in for women who are accomplished scholars or um, writers, where talent and the ability to sort of raise a family's reputation um, in the literary realm among a certain class of you know, literate um, people could be a filial act, even if it meant that other things you did in your life didn't conform to the typical model of a filial daughter. There are also some really interesting and cool, surprising things um, in the next chapter, which looks at self-cultivation. This Mm -hmm. chapter opens with late 17th century and early 18th century texts that list injunctions regarding proper behavior for women and girls. In one text from 18, uh, or rather 1694, it urges women to be cautious of plucking their eyebrows, singing popular songs, sleeping late, and being wordy. Okay, Mm -hmm. so... How uh, let's talk a little bit uh, just briefly about this. How do we understand this as part of a discourse of self-cultivation? And for you, what are some of the most important and interesting ways that self-cultivation is discussed in instruction manuals and morality guides in this period? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, the most interesting things is that it's discussed in these kinds of public fora. You know, it's discussed at all, um, and in these in these published manuals that were originally um, marketed, published, and, and sort of aimed at parents uh, to educate their daughters. Um, but but by the end of the Tokugawa period, they were being published for women to read themselves. Um, and women's literacy sort of grows uh, over the course of the Tokugawa period. Um, there were always literate women, but but in, in terms of larger numbers of a commoner literate female reading audience is really develops only towards the end of the Tokugawa period. Um, so naturally, these kinds of manuals, you know, originally were aimed at uh, parents or educated, highly educated class, and then became more um, aimed at popular readers, including women themselves. Um, so, so the first thing that's interesting to me about these injunctions is that they are published and that they are part of a, uh, a circulating kind of what we might call a public discourse about about women, um, and in it, you know, the, the, there's a whole slew of things that are uh, that are um, laid out. Some of them are kind of um, um, what um, they're 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 you know commands to behave po- properly. So you know, about plucking your eyebrows, not sleeping late, not singing loud songs, not being you know, garrulous and argumentative, all these things that you might imagine would be meant to kind of keep women in their place. Uh, but the same texts will also um, uh, exhort women to uh, be educated, um, to to learn the basics, uh, to, to learn how to keep a house, to run a, to, to manage a household, um, to acquire all sorts of skills, um, and not just household skills, but but skills that might that, that that were you know for sort of cultivating an artistic sensibility that were um, meant to um, you know be applicable applicable to other skills besides um, you know the skills necessarily that we might think would be confined to a household a household sphere. Um, so I think there are a lot of things about those prescriptive manuals that are that are um, that are unexpected um, in terms of what they're they're advocating, what kinds of behaviors they're advocating for women mm-hmm. and not. 
Yeah. <laughs> so then the chapter takes us through um, some of the key aspects of self-cultivation that are discussed here. And we won't have time to go into these in detail, but I'll just mention um, it covers reading and writing and uh, especially the gendered aspects of education. It talks about sewing and proper speech and beauty and appearance and art, artistic and cultural achievements. Um, and also looks at the ways that writings by women and about women discuss practices of self-cultivation. So there's a whole lot in there for listeners um, who become readers. That moves us to marriage. Now, as chapter three shows, while prescriptive texts on marriage in the Tokugawa period painted marriage as a kind of lifelong bond that seriously constrained women in all kinds of ways, in practice, um, marriage actually varied considerably and divorce and remarriage happened quite a lot. And there's some really, really cool stuff in this chapter um, that comes out of both the analysis of official regulations regarding marriage and then also attentiveness to popular discourses um, of this and the experiences of women themselves. So um, I'm just going to keep this broad, Marsha. For you, what is um, perhaps most surprising about what you found out about marriage in this context as it emerged from these particular sources that you looked at? Yeah. Um, so I guess the most surprising thing um, is that, you know, I think we, even though even historians who should know better, um, tend to have in the forefront of our minds sort of contemporary ideas about marriage and in this case about, you know, termination of marriage or divorce. Um, and what was unexpected for me was the frequency with which marriages were terminated um, sometime, you know, and then we hear about the rules. Well, you know, only a man could divorce a woman, women can divorce a man. And it was very hard to, which was true in a legal sense, but there were all sorts of, you know, marriage was much less formal and there were all sorts of ways that a union could be ended, um, at the initiative of a woman and her family, um, as well as, uh, by the man and his family, the men had, especially as you go up this to the elite classes um, had more legal and and sort of you know social prerogative to to um, to end a marriage but it it, it uh, was not uh, limited um, but women it wasn't that women had uh, had no power at all um, so I guess in, in, to step back a little bit in terms of, of marriage um, as an institution um, you know unlike in the West marriage in Japan is not a sacrament it's not a it, it's not a a culturally spiritually sanctioned bond with some kind of deeper meaning you know that it, as it is in the christian west for example um so that uh you know despite these these injunctions that marriage you know you should marry the woman should marry once and 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 for a lifetime that was uh, not uh, in, in many cases, the practice at all. Many women were married several times. Uh, many were divorced. Many were remarried. Many, um, uh, you know, were able to sort of reconstitute families and family lives by uh, by multiple marriages. And I found that to be very surprising. And it goes along with uh, recent research, more in the social history of marriage, which found that uh, Japan actually had an extraordinarily high divorce rate in the Tokugawa period um, that decreased substantially really only um uh, you know in in the in the modern period especially after the importation of western kind of victorian um morals and ideas about monogamy um so so the the notion again based on a, a contemporary observation that you know japanese people don't divorce was certainly not true um in in the tokugawa period so as we move from this to chapter four, we move from um, the discourse of marriage to that of motherhood. And chapter four looks at motherhood in a really interesting way that disaggregates two separate but related aspects of motherhood in this period. You call them biological and social. Mm -hmm. So looking first at the, well, actually first, what, uh, can you talk a little bit about that distinction for you? Um, because that might not be something that listeners would immediately think of, right? When, um, thinking about this phenomenon from these texts for you, why is it important to disaggregate the biological and the social here? And what does that bring to the analysis? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, in some ways the, the motherhood chapter anticipates um, the chapter that follows, which is on succession and family uh, continuity, um, in the sense that there were there were, you know, the chapters together show that I think there were many ways 
um, to be a mother, to be a parent. And, and those ways were not necessarily uh, in terms of biological reproduction. Um, so, so there is that. So I think it's important to talk about as I do in that chapter, the, 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 the two, the two, at least two ways of defining motherhood. And one is, is through the biological act of reproduction. Um, and the other is through, um, the, 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 the act of mothering, um, which may be centered on a biological child, um, or may not, um, but is equally important to defining the role of mother and the and the the, the values and the the sort of um, uh, characteristics that are that are attendant to motherhood um, don't necessarily uh, attend only to biological mothers. I guess is the way, or the biological mother of a particular child. Um, so I thought that was important to point out, and this also relates to the STEM family in the sense that when you have a family in which the um, a family system that's so streamlined, choices have to be made about airship and have to be made about who stays in the family and who is excluded from the family. Um, and again, biology there is fundamental, but it's not defining uh, as to who constitutes the family. So I think because of that particular family system and because of the ways in which people were moved in and out of different family lines, um, uh, in great part by adoption, or through marriage, uh, women marrying out, heirs being adopted in, uh, or you know, various people, you know, who were not kin um, being um, incorporated into what we would call the family. Um, I think you have to talk about a broader definition of the family that goes beyond actual blood kinship. Mm-hmm. So, some really interesting things here come out of this chapter. I'm just going to mention some of the things that come out in the biological part of this. Um, So the chapter asks how knowledge of conception, pregnancy, and childbirth represented in instructional texts for women um, played out, right? And you talk a lot here about the notion and practices of fetal education, which is really, really interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. The chapter also talks about and looks at some of the most important ways that the discourse on reproduction changed over time. Um, And this is also really fascinating. Um, it looks at, among other things, a tendency toward the humanization of the fetus, right? So there's, you show this shift here, and I just want to mention this for listeners because I found it super fascinating, this shift from representing stages of the fetus in some of these texts as Buddhist ritual implements to mm-hmm. representing fetal stages in more humanized forms. Um, and so there's a really, really interesting um, approaches toward visual culture, toward histories of medicine and the body and pregnancy and visualizing of the fetus. And there's really, really cool stuff happening here. But there's also this whole part of the chapter that looks at social aspects of motherhood. Um, And let's talk about that a little bit um, in more detail, because that'll, as you mentioned, um, lead into what's happening in the next chapter on succession, I think really nicely. Okay, so you show here in this part of the chapter that discussions of social motherhood are almost entirely absent from early Tokugawa instruction manuals, but over time, a wide range of popular texts start emphasizing the mother-child bond, and in particular, the kind of peculiarities in, you know, sometimes of this bond. Um, so, Marsha, could you talk about this phenomenon, right? Both the absence of this from early Tokugawa instruction manuals and also um, kind of what changes when these popular texts start emphasizing this mother-child bond and, and why is that changing in particular? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good question. Um, so, so there's a lot of different factors that are at play in, in, um, in, in this particular uh, topic. And one is um, the particular demographic profile of early modern Japan, um, which is, I think, pretty pretty well known to to, um, uh, to, to students of the period. So, so you had in the 17th century a, a, a very rapidly rising population um, population that that more than doubles in the first hundred years of the Tokugawa period. It's between 1600 and the early and the early 1700s. But then the population levels off, right? And and uh, famously, uh, in terms of uh, uh, sort of Japanese demographic, but also uh, economic history, the population levels off and does not grow again 
uh, substantially until the middle of the 19th century. So the population stabilizes um, at about 30 million um, total population from this the 1720s through the 1850s. Um, and the reasons for that are many, but they almost certainly uh, uh, included and, and there was there were, uh, you know, the, the first thing you think about are, are disease, right? High mortality. Um, but and there were endemic diseases in Japan, but no huge epidemics. Um, so one of the ways that and I'm summarizing a lot of very uh, obviously complicated um, debates, but it's it's certain that some form of population control, family planning and population control was exercised by Japanese families on a fairly large scale. Um uh, beginning in uh, the, the the fairly uh, early part of the Tokugawa period, um, and and that families were limited for reasons, you know, for for many reasons, uh, economic reasons, but also um, uh, uh, sort of re- scarcity. In other words, uh, was one limit, but um, uh, but also choice. And so there's been a lot uh, uh, written on. Um, on abortion, on infanticide, and uh, the degree to which um, those were both practiced to limit family size and uh, raise the standard of living for the surviving family members. So in other words, small family sizes were preferred to enhance the overall sort of survivability and, and, um, and quality of life of the, of the remaining family members. Um, so in this broader demographic picture, I think that's what the broader we have to situate motherhood in the broader demographic picture, both representations of the reproductive um, of, of, of biological reproduction as well as um, social uh, representations or cultural representations of mothers. Um, so those changes in the depiction of the fetus, for example, parallel um, a growing concern with rates of infanticide and low. Uh, rates of reproduction, um, so that so, such that they become um, implicated in anti-infanticide um, uh, uh, literature that starts to get uh, circulated, especially in the Northeast um, by the later 18th century, um, and the humanization of the fetus. Uh, you know, there, there's many reasons for that, but it, you know, one of them uh, is a growing uh, sense of. Um, uh, of of what human life is, perhaps the the value of um, uh, of a human life, um, and the nature of of, uh, of human reproduction. Um, I think in the in terms of the social side of the picture, um, that one of the reasons that you it, again, it's not I don't think it's the only reason, but one reason that you don't have um, much depiction of motherhood in the early to, in early Tokugawa period sources was in part because. Perhaps it was unproblematic. People had children. People had more children. The population was growing. Um, there was, you know, uh, uh, land to support uh, growing families. Uh, land reclamation increases dramatically in the 17th century. But by the early 18th century, a, a kind of, uh, you know, limit has been reached. And then reproduction becomes an issue. Um, and, and the issue of motherhood comes to the fore uh, in ways that it hadn't before. Um, and you start to see these depictions of the intense bond between a mother and a child and the differentiation between a mother's bond with a child and a father's bond with a child um, and all sorts of, uh, of other, uh, of, um, you know, more acute and dramatized um, demonstrations of the importance of motherly love and caring, uh, maybe in part because uh, because families, again, were, were smaller and, and this notion that children were fewer and therefore um, precious and valuable um, was increasing at some level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the next chapter actually extends some of these issues and concerns into a focused look at succession on problems and uh, issues surrounding succession in this context. The chapter shows that women were central, absolutely central, to the adoption and succession processes. Now, the chapter demonstrates here early on for listeners who, um, again, may not be familiar so much with this context or this literature, that the early modern STEM family was, in in the words of the book, a corporate entity defined much less by blood ties than by what one might call contextual functionality, right? And this gets at some of what you've talked about already. Success in this context is defined as the perpetuation of the lineage over time. And over the course of the Tokugawa period, adoption became a key way to achieve this success. 
Okay, so I just want to kind of open it up to you, Marsha. Um, in what ways, and in what ways uh, perhaps that you're most interested in or that are most um, kind of engaging for you, were women crucial to processes of adoption? And how does this show up most interestingly for you in their own writings? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so again, I think adoption is is one of these topics that that even though we know better, we tend to to import our own notions of what adoption is um, onto the early modern Japanese context. And I think for modern, at least American people, when you talk about adoption, you you think primarily of bringing a child into your own family to raise as one of your own children, right? As as you would raise your own uh, blood related your own biological children. Um, but that's really uh, a minority practice, I would say, in early modern Japan when you're speaking of adoption, even though we use the same word and the, and the, the same term is used in modern Japanese for adoption as it was um, uh, in the early modern period. So um, so I think the, the, the interesting way in which, the, the important way in which women play a part in this adoption um, issue is uh, not only... And, and not primarily as adoptees themselves, but as facilitators of the introduction of various non-kin into the family unit. And one of the primary ways women played this role of sort of facilitator um, was through um, this this uh, practice of the in-marrying son-in-law, what in Japanese is called mukoyoshi. Um, and this is a practice that is not is seen very rarely in late imperial China and never in Chosun Korea. It was not practiced in, in other parts in, in, in Korea and rarely practiced in only regionally um, certain areas in late imperial China. So it's a practice, but it's a practice that was widespread in Japan and remains widespread today. Uh, and that is uh, 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 if a family lacks a male heir or lacks a suitable male heir, in a biological child, what it can do is adopt the husband of a daughter as its son and make him the heir. Um, so the daughter stays in the natal household. Um, she brings in a husband. The husband takes the family name, and he marries into the house just as a woman usually married in the more normative pattern married into a, a, a husband's house, right, took his name. Um, so this was very common among all classes, uh, this pattern of in, of in marrying uh, adopted husbands. Um, and it it gave in the family context uh, women uh, certain kinds of authority that they would not have ordinarily had had they moved out of their own families and married into um, their husband's families. You know, they're living with their parents in their household, the household that they grew up in. The husband is the one who's the outsider and the one who has to sort of conform to the family norms. And he gets the, yes, he gets the title as, as heir and family head, but uh, the, 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 you know, residual authority of the natal family resides more with the wife than with the husband. Um, the the maternal grandparents will have a lot of influence on raising children, so on and so forth. So um, this had a lot of effects, not only in terms of the distribution of household authority, um, but on the value of daughters as a whole. So if you didn't have a son, I mean, that was not great um, to inherit the family headship. But if you had a daughter who could marry in an heir, that was fine too. Um, and so it, it uh, gave women sort of latent power as daughters that they would not have if that were not a, a prominent practice in Japanese families. Um, so, so that's one major feature, I think, that, that, um, that was distinctive about um, succession and in the STEM family in, 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 early, modern, uh, in early modern Japan. Mm-hmm. Are there particularly interesting ways that you see this playing out in the writings that you looked at? Um, you, you looked at three particular figures in this chapter um, that wrote about um, their experiences with adoption and succession. And does anything in particular stand out as, um, you know, like especially engaging for you? Yeah. Um, well, you see in marrying sons-in-law in virtually every lineage, especially in samurai family lineages. Um, you see them in commoner lineage as well, but because in, in, in the case of the samurai elite, the, uh, you know, the economically, they, uh, you know, a lot of them weren't extraordinarily wealthy, but the only prestige they had was linked to their names. It was absolutely imperative for them to keep their lineages intact over time. Um, and 
so one of the women I talk about, one of the families or the women memoirs that I talk about in this chapter is that of um, Kuroda Tosako, Tosako, who was the wife of a sort of middle-ranking daimyo in the later 18th century. And their lineage, her, uh, uh, Tosako and her husband, Kuroda Naokuni, um, had <laughs> they're they're in, in the in the in the sort of uh, patriarchal family system are are uh, afflicted with a very bad uh, uh, luck of the draw, which is they have only daughters, um, and and this would have been sort of the death knell to a family uh, system to a family line if were it not for this ability to marry in um, and adopt daughters' husbands, and that's exactly what they do. Over a period of generations, they just keep producing uh, uh, daughters who marry in heavenly daughters. Um, and so the only way this family survives is by adopting in um, husbands. And if you trace out the lineage, as I do in this in, in that chapter, um, it's not only through in-marrying husbands, but through adoptions. There's, there's, hard, there's one case over a course of 100 years of a father-to-son, father-to-oldest son, transmission of headship in that family line. It's all to adoptees, um, either adopted husbands or single male adoptees, sometimes kin, sometimes not. Um, and so this family tree of, of this, and it's a pretty prominent daimyo family, um, you know, is, is, is just one example of the extraordinarily manufactured nature of um, of, of many lineages, including elite in fact, especially elite lineages um, in Japan, and I find it remarkable that that um, that this was an entirely. I mean, I don't find it remarkable anymore. But I think when I first started studying it, I find I found it remarkable that that these uh, were this was this, this was common that this kind of of um, uh, of uh, way to um, uh, keep a family going by bringing in uh, essentially outsiders. Um, was quite remarkable given the emphasis on bloodline and parentage that is so evident in present-day Japan. So as we move toward the close of the book, we move kind of toward um, the conclusion of our own conversation. We move to a chapter, this is the last body chapter, on retirement. Now, there's a really, really fascinating um, set of sources that you talk about here in this context. Um, in talking about the way that retirement of women was represented in popular discourse, you look at idealized views of women's retirement in early modern board games. Mm-hmm. So we have to talk about board games, right? Like, of course, <laughs> we have to talk about board games. Uh, Marcia, can you talk a little bit about um, both the nature of this kind of source that you worked with, right? These board board games, um, and also what perhaps for you is most interesting and important about um, the way these popular sources uh, convey ideas about uh, the retirement of women in these later stages of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the board games are fascinating, and they've, they've been worked on. This is, a, this is not my discovery by any means. I have to credit other scholars who worked on them, most notably, um, uh, well, many Japanese scholars, but also a European uh, scholar named Suzanne Formanek. Um, and so, so the, the the games are um, it's kind of like shoots and ladders, right? You you, you um, progress through a board uh, through the board by by um, rolling a, a die and advancing, but at any point you can um, hit that shoot and and get returned to uh, to another spot that's less advantageous. Um, so 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 there are these there are these popular sort of uh, board games, and they came to represent all different aspects of popular life. There are board games that are pilgrimage. You know, you go on pilgrimage to the board game. You go on sightseeing on the board game through the sites of Edo or the sites of the Tokaido Road or something like that. Um, And they also came to represent life courses. Um, So one genre of board game from the early modern period is the women's life course. And these are the ones that I talk about in the chapter where um, you uh, move through um, life course and by by landing on certain options um, are there are certain routes that are more or less advantageous to achieving the goal and the goal in in many of these games um, is achieving the life of the rich old retired lady um, living a life of leisure and that's the goal that's what you want to attain the ways to get there are many um, but one of the most efficacious ways is becoming a concubine to a high-ranking man having his child and then 
you know, retiring as as the rich lady. Uh, and, and there are many interesting the, the the ways to get to that goal are often not ways that that are particularly virtuous. Um, uh, you can get there by being a concubine. You can get there by being a courtesan. Um, uh, you, sometimes you can get there by hard work or by you know cultivating yourself, and doing all the right things. But there's also pitfalls, and you might fall down to the bottom. You know, back to the bottom of being a starch peddler on the street or something like that. Um, so, so the 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 roots to success in these games are not necessarily the roots of hard work and discipline and um, you know pious behavior. Um, but but the goal is always to be that rich old lady, and uh, and and that is what I found uh, very interesting because clearly, and what I talk about in the rest of the chapter is that is really a status to be aspired to. And once you attained a certain age, you were allowed as a woman to do all kinds of things that would have been totally inappropriate at an earlier stage of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're allowed to travel, go sightseeing, go to the hot springs, uh, write your poetry, sit around, relax, um, uh, do all the things that, that when you were of childbearing house manager, you know, childbearing age, managing a household, raising a family would have been completely frowned upon. Um, and so the, the, the attention to life course, uh, when you're talking about behavior and norms of behavior, I think is really important. So there's also a conclusion to the book, and we won't have time to talk about um, everything interesting that's happening here. But one of the things um, that's happening here that I think is worth kind of um, closing on before we uh, come to our conclusion is the question of how the analysis of the book and the kinds of issues that came out of your analysis of these sources might inform how we understand the problem or problems of women in Japan today. So the conclusion actually moves us to the 21st century um, and talks a little bit about this. So, Marsha, for you, as a way of maybe moving us to our conclusion, um, what are some of the most important ways or some ways at least that what's happening in the analysis of the book might inform how we understand the problem of women in today's Japan mm-hmm. um, I think that um, well a, a couple of things I think that one of the ways I, I frame the problem of women is that that um, from a modern perspective um, when you look back on the Tokugawa period women were seen as a problem in that they were they that they needed to be controlled, right? Um, and their behavior needed to be codified, and they had to stay in their places. Um, and that vision is very different, as we talked about. If you look at you know at, at what women were actually doing um, in 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 the Tokyo period. Um, similarly, today I think there's a, you know there's now a new wave of discourse in Japan about women as a problem, and this comes in the form of, of the Abe administration's policies towards what they're calling womenomics, um, and this is the corollary of Abenomics, right? The attempt to to revitalize Japan's economy by pursuing sort of uh, what are supposed to be sort of broad-based reform efforts, um, some of which are their effect, I suppose, is debatable. Um, but womenomics is um, a, in some ways, an opposite trajectory in that it's kind of, to my mind, trying to um, disguise itself as a gender equality move, uh, saying that we have to get more women in the workplace, we have to get more daycare built, we have to get more um, uh, women on the you know leading in, in leading management positions in business and in government, and get more women elected to parliament. Japan is an abysmally low percentage of women in in public office um, compared to other countries in the world. Um, but what it's really trying to do, and so that's the discourse, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of gender equality discourse. But what what women Ox is really trying to do is get more women in the workforce because, you know, more women working is going to be, mean more economic productivity. And, uh, and, and more economic productivity, of course, will float all boats um, and, and, uh, and solve, you know, certain labor problems and solve, uh, uh, you know, ostensibly could solve um, some of the uh, thorny or at least, uh, you know, um, give a shot in the arm to some uh, of the of the economic problems that Japan has. Um, so, so I think um, that being attentive to how the problem is being framed and what actually is be- the the problem, the ostensible problem, and the problem that's hidden behind disc- the discourse um, is is useful in thinking about um, present day policies, just as it is in the in the Tokugawa period. 
um, when, you know, women were framed from a modern perspective uh, from, as a certain kind of problem, but in reality, it was something other. Um, and now that we are at the close of our conversation, is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to get to? I know there's a million billion things, right, that we didn't talk about. There's, it's such a rich book and there's so much more we could talk about. But is there anything specific um, as of right now that you'd like to put on the table for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Um, well, I think, you know, when you finish a project, all you can think about is its shortcomings, and what you wish you would have done, what you wish you would have said. And I think um, one thing that is a, a, certainly a, a drawback of using case studies, I mean, the benefit of case studies and, and of these, you know, um, individual memoirs and diaries and, uh, and letters that I've used in the in the book is that it gives you a texture and a sort of immediacy that the maybe statistics or, you know, sort of narrative uh, explanation doesn't. But the drawback is that they're only those examples, right? There's a handful of examples. They can't possibly be representative of all women's experience. Um, and of course, I'm using written sources, so I'm limited to uh, to literate uh, women. And that that leaves out, you know, the vast majority of Japanese women who are not writing um, these kinds of these kinds of sources. Um, so so. You know the the um, the nature of the of the source material um, and the choices that you know I made as a historian to go down certain paths are are uh, you know are are also in some way um, in some way limiting um, the, the the choice of looking at. Um, the discursive sources, the public discourse, the, the manuals, the, the uh, published uh, didactic literature on women um, was an attempt to, to, to balance that out. So you have a public discourse and then kind of a, a, a more uh, private individual um, discourse. But even then, you know, you're picking and choosing from a, a vast corpus of uh, materials. Um, but I think, you know, that, in and of, that said, um, the important point is that there is a vast corpus of writing on women. And I try to cover that a little bit in the book. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of extant uh, instructional manuals for women published in the Tokugawa period. I mean, that's extraordinary. Um, and that, that, that tells us so many things about both, um, you know, the importance of women as a topic of conversation and therefore in society at large, and also of a concern with channeling uh, on the part of these mostly male writers, sort of channeling women's energies and activities in certain beneficial directions. Again, one can make the connection to the present day without too much effort. Um, similarly, you know, the fact that we have these examples of women's writings um, from the Tokugawa period, these are not the only ones. There are many. Uh, a scholar named Shiba Keiko has uh, spent her life, and she's now in her early 80s, maybe, collecting uh, writings by women um, from all parts of Japan, from women of all walks of life, all statuses, all and different levels of literacy, um, and there are there there are she has uh, you know an archive of thousands of examples of of correspondence of diaries and memoirs of poetry um, written by women. So uh, you know so this only this this is a, a, scratches the surface, but it, I hope you know serves as an introduction to um, this this vast these vast resources on um, uh, on, on women and. and uh, you know, that are, they can be used to explore gender relations in the early modern period. And now that the book is out, what are you working on now? What are you currently writing and inspired by? So I'm, my next book project is a history of adoption in Japan from 1600 to about 2010, or maybe even closer to the present, um, which is insane in some ways. Um, but uh, it, I, the, the connections to the previous um to, to the problem of women is is pretty obvious. Um, when I was doing the research on succession and and just realized the enormous importance of adoption to maintaining the family system, uh, and and also how how you know every family has an adoptee, and 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 you don't have to scratch very far. You know, you ask a Japanese friend, you know, is anybody in your family adopted? And they say, oh yeah, you know, my uncle, my grand grandfather, my you know whatever. Everybody. Even today, it's not unusual to find families in which there are uh, adoptees. Now, the interesting thing 
to me is the vast change in adoption practices from the early modern to, uh, in some ways, the vast change, in other ways, the continuities also to the modern period. Um, today in Japan, child adoption, there's virtually no child adoption. I mean, when I say virtually no, I mean none. Uh, I mean, not not none, but 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 statistically very little given the, the population. Um what there is is a lot of adult adoption. So if you look at child rates of child adoption, Japan has one of the lowest rates in the world of child adoption, both domestic and international. So Japanese families adopting Japanese children and Japanese children being adopted internationally um, by non-Japanese families. Extremely low rate of child adoption. Um, what you see, though, if you look at adoption overall, Japan actually has a very high rate of adoption, but most of it is adult adoption. And it's adoption for inheritance. It's adoption of um, same-sex partners um, uh, as, a, as a form of legalizing a relationship because gay marriage is not allowed. Um, and up until recently, it was also a means to evade an inherit, inheritance taxes or to, to, to more widely disperse um, inheritance taxes. And that's complicated. I won't go into it. But um, so, so there's continuities in the sense that adult adoption was very frequent during the early modern period um, and remains frequent today. But the discourse on adoption and particularly the discourse on blood relations has transformed dramatically, whereas in the early modern period, it didn't really matter if the person you adopted was a close blood relation. And in fact, it was often a complete outsider. Um, you know, the function, the function of adopting an heir was to have an heir. And that was the major, the, the, the importance was a functional one. Um, but in the modern period, at some point, and, and I think it was in the early uh, 20, in the pre-war period, and uh, in, in particular, the discourse on, um, on, on blood relations as a defining uh, factor, a, a defining aspect of family changed significantly such that today you, you know, one of the reasons that child adoption is so rare is that people don't want to bring into their families a person who is unrelated to them by blood. And that, 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 uh, taboo was just non-existent uh, in the period I study. So I'm, I'm really interested in tracing that transformation and why it happened and, um, you know, why you still have these high rates of adult adoption while you have negligible rates of child adoption, what that tells us about conceptions of family and, um, and, and, um, conceptions of, uh, of kinship, um, and so forth. Well, best of luck with that research. Um, I can't wait to read that either. And uh, in the meantime, thanks for taking time away from that to talk with me about this book. Congratulations. And it's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very, very much for joining us and check us out next time.